Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Chapter 17, John chapter 17. Do I sound loud or hot or am I okay? Maybe it's just up here. Everybody says it's good. All right, good. I'm sure almost everybody here, hopefully, maybe, has seen the classic movie, The Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz is a story that starts out in black and white with Dorothy in Kansas. And you know that she's catapulted by a tornado And she plops down in the land of Oz, and as she opens the door, there's Technicolor. Now, for us that have HD TVs, it's not that big of a deal. We're like, so what? It's in color. But back then, in 1939, when the first audience saw The Wizard of Oz, they were mesmerized by the switch from black and white to color. And there's that famous phrase that Dorothy says as she's walking around. She looks at her little dog, Toto, and what does she say? Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. We're not in Kansas anymore. As you think about where we live in 2017 and the culture that we find ourselves in today, you may be thinking to yourself, we're not in Kansas anymore. Now, I'm a product of the 80s, okay? I was born in the 70s, formative years in the 80s, and and so there's been a lot of changes just from the 80s, and I think about my son who's off in college and just the changes in the past 20, 30 years. Some of you are older than me, and you can think about the changes in our culture and where we find ourselves today. Now, I'm not a social scientist, and I don't pretend to play one on TV, but I can tell you that probably... If you look at our culture, things started to probably change around the 1960s when culture became very different. Some people are are, are basically saying we live in a post-Christian world today. I want to show you on the screen, and you can, you've got a little graphic on, your, on the back of your note-taking sheet that may help you with this. I want to talk a little bit about cultures here before we start and get into our text. There are such things as a pre-Christian culture. Now, a pre-Christian culture is a culture, think about the early church going into the Roman Empire. You've got pagans, you've got, you've got people that have no concept at all of who Jesus is. They have no concept at all of the Bible. They are a totally pre-Christian culture. There, there's no Christian history. There's, there's nothing there. That's a pre-Christian culture, very similar to the early church in the days of the Roman Empire. But then, as you think about other cultures, today, we have unreached cultures. So when we go to India, and we go into the villages of India, you go into what's called an unreached culture. Now, an unreached culture means this, there's no missionary in that culture. There's no Bible in the language of that culture. There's no church planning movement. There's very few, if any, believers in an unreached culture. They're totally unreached. Then you move into what we call an unevangelized culture. Now, unevangelized is different than unreached. 
Unreached means there's no church, there's no missionary, there's no Bible in their language. Unevangelized means this culture does have access to the gospel. There may be the Bible in their language. There may be a church, there may be missionaries, but they haven't heard the gospel on a mass scale. And when it does start to happen in an unevangelized culture, that's usually where persecution hits those cultures. Then you get into what's called an evangelized culture. An evangelized culture is where a significant body of believers have heard the gospel. They know who Jesus is. They've heard the gospel. But yet it's not made a major impact on culture at large. It hasn't affected the government, it hasn't affected the school system, it hasn't affected politics, it it hasn't embedded itself in the culture. It's an evangelized culture. People hear the gospel, they know the gospel, but it hasn't impacted the culture. Then, as the gospel begins to permeate through cultures, you get to what's called a reached culture. A reached culture. Now, a reached culture means that the majority of people in that culture are believers in Jesus Christ. The majority of the laws, the majority of the values, the majority of the nation has a Judeo-Christian outlook on life to where Christianity affects everything about that culture. It's laws, it's politics, it's, 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 it's worldview. It's a reached culture. Then something begins to happen. Think about Europe for a moment. It moves from being reached to what we call post christian Think about huge cathedrals in Europe that sit empty where there was a former culture that believed the gospel but this new culture has abandoned the gospel. So somewhere in that tipping point between a reach culture and a post-Christian culture, the culture begins to shift. There is no longer this Judeo-Christian worldview. There is no longer this majority worldview in the culture. There's a former generation that was reached, but this new generation is post-Christian in the sense that there's a lot of churches that sit empty. There's a lot of people that have abandoned Christianity. Now, here's the, here's the issue. Look at the post-Christian and look at the pre-Christian. What ends up happening is those two things intersect. And we could say that today we're living in a post-Christian culture or we're living in a pre-Christian culture. You take your pick. Either way, we're living in a culture that has abandoned any memory of Christianity. And we're also living in a culture with people that are very much like the first century in Rome and in the Roman Empire where they have no clue about Christianity. So whether you call it post-Christian, whether you call it pre-Christian, I think there's some cross-pollination there. Any way you look at it, one thing we can say is we're not in Kansas anymore. We are not in a culture that is majority-reached. We are in a culture where we are the minority. We are in a culture that has abandoned Judeo-Christian values. We are in a culture that is hostile and getting more hostile to the true claims of Christianity, which brings up a huge question. How in the world are you and I supposed to live as a Christian in a post-Christian slash pre-Christian, whatever you want to call it, world? In a world that is different than the world you and I grew up in. Now, some of the younger students, the younger kids in here, they have no idea that there's a difference. It's just the world they've grown up in. 
Some of you have a memory that goes back to a culture that was predominantly reached. The question is, we're here now in 2017. How do you and I live in a culture that is hostile to the gospel? So you've got to ask yourself the questions. Are you on your own? How do you know that you're not going to fail? How do you know that you're not going to give in to this culture? How do you know that you're not going to be swept along by the tide and you're just going to give in to the worldliness of this culture? Are you left alone? Are you, are you out there flailing on your own? How do you know you're not going to fail? What do you need the most? What do you and I need the most as we face this culture? Well, here's the main idea from our text this morning. Here's the main idea of what Jesus teaches us. Here it is. In a world that is hostile to Jesus, you desperately need his spiritual protection. His spiritual protection. You and I need Christ's protection spiritually. We need to be guarded by Jesus. He will preserve us to the end And he will keep us against the three enemies which wage war against our soul. Do you know what the three enemies are that wage war against your soul every day? The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world's not going away. The devil's not going away. And as long as you're alive, your flesh is not going away. So every day you face this battle. So you and I need spiritual protection. And so Jesus prays for that in his high priestly prayer here in John 17. So let's look together at verses 11 through 15, and let's hear how Jesus prayed for us, what he prayed for us, and how we can be encouraged by this prayer. Starting in John chapter 17, verse 11. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy Fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. One of the key words that Jesus uses here is keep, guard, protect. Keep them in your name, Holy Father. Guard them. I have guarded them. I have protected them. And so when you think about these words where Jesus keeps us, where Jesus guards us, where Jesus protects us, it's very similar to him being the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep and keeps the sheep. He watches over the sheep. He protects you. He watches over you. He guards you. Very similar to what Jesus said earlier in John chapter 10, 27 through 29. What did Jesus say? My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You're in a double grip. You're in the grip of the Father. You're in the grip of the Son. This double grip, and nobody can take you out of that because Jesus protects you. Now, in this prayer, he says, I'm not asking that you be taken out of the world, but that you be protected, you be guarded, you be kept as you live in this world. And notice in verse 11 how Jesus refers to God, the Father. In verse 11, he says, I'm no longer in the world. They're no longer in the world. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Holy Father. It's the only time in the entire Gospel of John where God the Father is addressed this way, Holy Father. Now, I want you to think about why Jesus addresses him that way, purposefully. Holy Father. What does the word holy mean? Powerful, distinct, transcendent, glorious, majestic. We are are approaching the, the holy God, the one who's the creator of all things, the one who's majestic, who's so far above us, who's perfect, who's absolutely glorious. But notice he says, holy father, daddy, you can enter into the presence of this holy God. You have access to your heavenly father. God is near to you through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus prays that we would be kept, we would be protected in the power of the name of God. And I love Proverbs 18.10. It reminds me of this. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. So what we see from this passage are five ways Jesus protects us. What do you need protection from? What do you need guarding from? How do you need Jesus to preserve you in this world? He's not taking you out of the world. He's leaving you in the world. But how is he going to protect you as you're in this world? This world that's coming against you with all guns guns blazing at you. Well, let's look at this. Here's the first thing that Jesus protects us from. First of all, Jesus protects us from disunity. Disunity. Look at verse 11. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus says they're one. He prayed for our unity. Now, I want you to think about this. We don't create this unity. We are already one by virtue of our relationship to Christ. When you became a Christian, you were adopted into God's family. We are already brothers and sisters in Christ. We're already unified. We are already one in Christ. And the grammar here is very interesting because notice what Jesus says. You get this in the, in the Greek text as you read it. That they may be one. Not that they may become one as if it wasn't there, it's actually a present tense verb. May they continually be one. We're already one. We're already unified. We're already together as a body of Christ. That's not the issue. The issue is that are we continuing to maintain that unity? I want you just real quickly to turn over in your Bibles to Ephesians for a moment. Ephesians chapter 4. And as you're turning there, let's just look at the screen, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. For just as the body's one 
and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ, for in one spirit we were baptized into one body, Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and we were all made to drink of the one spirit. We are one in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. But I want to show you in Ephesians chapter 4 a parallel passage of what Paul tells us that's very similar to what Jesus says here. So chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And here's the key thing, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you recall, to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Notice in verse 3, Paul says, maintain. Maintain that unity of the Spirit to keep that. Again, we don't create the unity. Jesus creates the unity. Now, here's an interesting thing here. Jesus prays for our unity And Paul tells us to maintain unity. Is unity within the body of Christ something that comes easily? What's the the temptation? To move to disunity. To have disruptions in our relationships. To not be unified. To not be patient with one another. To not be building one another up. To be backbiting. That's the general flow of the human heart. And so Jesus says, listen, you're already one. But you need to maintain that. Father, keep them from being disunified. And you may ask yourselves, okay, what's a danger to disunity? Well, go on down in Ephesians chapter 4 to verse 25, and Paul's going to list the dangers to disunity. If you want to know what the dangers are to disunity, Paul's going to list them. Verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Back to John 17, Jesus says, Father would they still have that oneness that we have? Now, I don't understand the mystery of the oneness that that God the Father and Jesus the Son have, this eternal covenant of love that's experienced within the Trinity. I can't begin to understand that type of love, that type of unity, that type of oneness. But Jesus says we're one just as the Father and the Son are one, which means that as as a body of Christ, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have been connected together into this powerful union through the Holy Spirit, and we need to strive to maintain that unity. We have the unity, but we need to, to maintain that unity through forgiving one another loving one another, being patient with one another, bearing one another's burdens, not, not backbiting, not, not speaking falsely about one another, 
So the first thing that Jesus prays for, our protection, is he protects us from disunity. The second thing that Jesus protects us from is Jesus protects us from defecting. Defecting. Eddie Slovak is one of the most famous deserters or defectors in U.S. history. During World War II, he served in France under the 28th Infantry. And when the Germans began firing, he got scared and he deserted. He, he went across enemy lines. He deserted. He was gone. He defected. He was gone for six weeks. And he finally showed up again to rejoin his unit. And he confessed. He said, listen, I deserted. I defected. He was offered a chance to recant. He was offered an opportunity to, to continue fighting. We'll, we'll give you a free pass if you continue fighting. He says, no, I can't continue fighting. So he went before the authorities and he was court-martialed. And so instead of continuing to fight, he pled guilty to defecting, to deserting, and he went to trial and he was sentenced to execution and he was actually executed on, in 1945. And Slovak was the first man executed since the Civil War and the last as a deserter, as a defector. Now who's the defector in Jesus' ranks? Look at verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them. There's those words, I've guarded them. I've kept them. And not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, about whom the scriptures might be fulfilled. Now, not one of them has been lost. Lost. That word lost, we just kind of glance over that. That word lost literally means to suffer eternal punishment in hell. Not one of us who've been given to Jesus in salvation will ever have to experience the fires of hell. We won't be lost. Jesus said this earlier in John 6, 37-39. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. If you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, you won't be lost. Now, Judas here is the exception because he's called the son of lostness, the son of destruction. Destruction there is the same word for loss. It's a play on words. He's the, not, not one of them was lost except for the son who was lost. Not one of them will experience perdition except for the son of perdition. It's the same Greek word there. Now, Jesus prophesied about Judas. John six sixty four in that same passage of scripture. There are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who were his that did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And then John six seventy, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil. Judas is prophesied in scripture as the son of destruction, the son of, uh, the son of lostness. There's only one other place in the Bible where this phrase son of destruction is used and it's talking about the future antichrist that will come at the end times. Paul mentions this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way for that day will come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. 
Judas is the son of destruction. He's a precursor to the final Antichrist. So when you think about Judas here, I don't want you to somehow think that Jesus lost Judas. Jesus didn't lose Judas. Jesus says, I've lost none that came to me in true faith. Judas did not come to Jesus in true faith. He was a pretender. He was a fake. He was a phony. He's a warning to all of us that would come and be a pretender, that you don't have true saving faith. He serves as a warning. He never truly believed in Jesus, which is kind of scary because Judas heard good teaching. Did he not? Judas went on some really good mission trips. I can tell you, three, three years with Jesus is a really good mission trip. Jesus, or Judas cast out demons. Judas performed miracles. Judas was a good guy, but yet he was not saved. That serves as a warning to those that would want to pretend and not truly have saving faith. But let's not focus on Judas because that's depressing. Let's focus on us. If you're truly given to Jesus, if you're truly saved, if you're truly a child, you won't be lost. Jesus will guard you. Jesus will keep you. You're not going to be lost. He's going to preserve you to the very end. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about this. Charles Spurgeon said this, I cannot comprehend a gospel which lets Christians fall away after they have been saved. And suffers the children of God to be burned in the fires of hell after having once believed in Jesus. Such a gospel I hate. If ever it should come to pass that sheep of Christ might fall away, my fickle, feeble soul at last would fall a thousand times a day. Think about that for a moment. If your salvation was left up to you, you'd fall a thousand times a day. If you could fall away from the faith, you would. Every day. At the end of every day, you'd fall away. But what does Jesus say? Not one will be lost. I've guarded them. I've kept them. Jesus promises to keep us to the end. Doesn't Romans 8 tell us that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ? Philippians 1.6 I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will what? Bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That good work that, that God started in you, he's going to finish. Jude 24, now to him who's able to keep you from what? Stumbling, falling, and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Now, if you're a true Christian, you will never fall away from a state of grace. God will preserve you to the end. Jesus will keep you. Jesus will guard you. You will not lose your salvation, but... Some of you are laughing now because I tend to say, but... And there's a pregnant pause. But... There is a danger of drifting. There's a danger of drifting. So you can get to a point in your Christian life where not where you lose your salvation, but you begin to drift away. You, you begin to have a cold heart. You begin to neglect your time alone with the Lord. You begin to not have vigorous affections for Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift i wonder if some of you this morning are in danger of drifting if you're a true christian you're not going to defect you're not going to fall away jesus is going to keep you to the end but you can drift for a season and as you drift for a season you find yourself out in no man's land and what does god do god gets you back but he has to get you back through discipline 
So be alert. Be careful that you're not drifting away. Stay alert. So Jesus protects us from disunity. He protects us from defecting. What's the third thing Jesus protects us from? Jesus, thirdly, protects us from discouragement. Discouragement. Look at verse 13. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. My joy. When you face temptations from the world, when you face trials from the world, when there's disunity in your life, when you're drifting, do you experience joy? No, you don't. You don't experience joy. You see, you and I can get discouraged very easily. You and I can get discouraged very easily. And what we need is a reminder that Jesus Christ gives us his joy. Now, go back in your Bibles there, in John 15, verse 11, and notice what he says. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus comes to bring us joy when we're discouraged. And not just a little puny bit of joy, but the fullness of joy. His joy. A joy that can't be taken away from us. Let me just say this. This has played out in my own personal life. I think it's played out in your life. I think by experience, I think by church history, you can agree with this statement. Those Christians who've been the most joyful have been those who've been the most assured in their salvation. Those who understand eternal security and know that nothing is going to take you out of the grip of a sovereign Savior. You can experience joy upon joy because you know God has you in His grip and He's going to keep you to the end. No matter what comes your way, no matter how many times you get discouraged, you know that the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so those believers that are most solid in eternal security, I think, are the most joyful because they understand God's got you to the end. He's going to protect you to the very end. Okay, so Jesus protects us from disunity. He protects us from defecting. He protects us from discouragement. If you don't see a pattern now, the next one's going to start with a D, so figure out what it is. Number four, Jesus protects us from derision. Derision. Look at verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world. The world has hated them. The world derides you. You're an object of scorn and derision. Now, go back to verse 8 for a moment. I have given them the words you gave me, and they have received them, and they've come to know in truth that I came to you, and they believe that you sent me. We as believers have kept Jesus' words. We carry Jesus' name. We've come to faith in Christ. And so as a result of Christ's words, or cult, a result of being in Christ's name, being a Christian, what comes your way? Jesus says the world is going to hate you. Have you noticed that the world doesn't hate pseudo-Christianity? This pseudo-Christianity, this, okay, basically Christianity is be good to each other, be nice, God wants you to be happy, God wants you to to have the self-actualization, and oh yeah, be nice to everybody, and God will be there for you when you need his help. Does anybody hate that? That's false Christianity. The world doesn't hate the false thing. 
What the world hates is the real deal. It never hates the imitation. It hates when you, when you are the full expression of a follower of Christ, when you live the real deal, when you are acting like a true, authentic Christian the way we should, that's when the world's going to hate you. Because just your mere presence exposes their sin. That's why Jesus says in John 3, 19 and 20, This is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And then 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Okay, see, when the world comes at you, when the world attacks you, when the world starts hating you, guess what ends up happening? You get discouraged. You get disunified. We start turning on ourselves. You, you tend to want to drift. I might as well just join them. If you can't beat them, join them. You see how these things all work together? When the world comes at you and begins to hate you, you start to lack joy. You start to think about drifting away. You start to think about how we can turn on each other. And that's why Jesus prays for this. You know, there was a man that was a companion of Paul. He was a travel companion of Paul. He was a minister with Paul. But then later on in Paul's life, this man left the faith. His name was Demas. 2 Timothy 4.10 For Demas, in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Notice why Demas deserted. What was he in love with? Demas was in love with the world. When you're in love with the world, you look like the world and the world doesn't hate you. But you're not of this world. You're not of this world. And Jesus says, the world's going to hate you because of that. Now, Jesus does not ever promise to take us out of our trials. But he does promise to help us through the trials. That's very, we've we got to get that, Christians. Jesus never promises to take us out of the trials, out of the world, out of the fire, but he promises to take us through it, whatever that may mean. Isaiah 43, 2. When you pass, when you pass through the waters, not if, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Jesus protects us from disunity, protects us from defecting, protects us from discouragement, protects us from derision. But number five, Jesus protects us from the devil, the devil himself. Look at verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Some of your translations may say evil. Literally, it's talking about the evil one. We're talking about Satan. We are in a battle against the forces of the evil one. Ephesians 6, 11 through 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to take your stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's a reality of where we are. We're in a battle. 
And we have an enemy. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world right now lies in the power of the evil one. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's a roaring lion. He's a great red dragon that's been cast down to earth. We are, we are struggling against, not against flesh and blood, but against wickedness in heavenly places. That's the reality of the Christian life. Spiritual warfare. Now one day, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire, and he will no longer do any harm. But how does Satan attack us? I think Satan attacks us in two ways. Number one, pride. Pride and self-centeredness. He, he tempts us to be inflated in our view of ourselves. But you know what he also does? Satan attacks us by making us feel defeated. That sin you dealt with 15 years ago that you asked forgiveness for and you repented of and you've gotten victory over, God doesn't really forgive you. Satan throws that back into your face and it makes you feel discouraged. It makes you feel like, I can never be forgiven. I, I can never have victory. God must never love me. I feel so defeated. I feel so discouraged. Both of those, whether it's pride or discouragement, they're both wicked because they focus your attention on yourself. That's what Satan wants you to think about yourself. Whether you think highly of yourself, whether you think lowly of yourself, he wants you to think about yourself. The last thing Satan wants you to think about is Jesus. When you begin to think about Jesus, you take the attention off yourself and you begin to look to Christ as your help. Look very carefully at verse 15. You wish Jesus would have said something different. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. What would we wish Jesus would have said? Beam me up, Scotty, right now. I want out of this world. In other words, what he's saying is, listen, they have a mission. We'll talk about this next week. We have a mission. We can be taken out of the world because God's given us a mission to the world to be salt and light to the world. There's a lost and dying world that needs to know the hope of the gospel. And so we must be here on planet earth to fulfill the mission for which God has given us so God doesn't take us out. And so this prayer by Jesus will not allow two things. Number one, the the first thing this, this prayer will not allow, it will not allow us to be lulled into friendship with the world. We're not of the world. You are not of the world. This world is not your home. This world is not your friend. James chapter 4 verse 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You're not a friend of the world. You're in the world. You're not of the world. You're not a friend of the world. So this prayer will not let you be lulled into becoming a friend with the world. But the second thing this prayer won't let you do is, this prayer won't let you disengage from the world. It's a dichotomy. You can't escape the world. You can't get out of the world. You're in the world. You've got to deal with the world. You're salt and light to the world. You can't escape. Jesus says, I'm not asking you to take them out, but I'm going to protect them through. 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now, I'm going to ask you a very personal question. Have you ever gotten to that point in your life where you were so depressed, so discouraged, so frustrated, so stressed out that you literally asked God, just take me home now. 
I don't want to deal with it anymore. I don't want to deal with life anymore. Take me home now. I don't want to deal with the mess. I don't want to deal with all of this stuff. Jesus just, dare you say it, Jesus just kill me now. Take me now. If you've ever felt that way, you're not alone. There were three men in the Bible that felt that very same way. So you're in good company. Think about Moses for a moment. You remember Moses? Moses was in the wilderness. And in Numbers chapter 15, he'd had enough. The Israelites were complaining. They were coming at him. They were wanting to go back to Egypt. And Moses just said, I've had enough. And listen to what Moses says in Numbers eleven fourteen through 15. Moses says, I am not able to carry this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. What does Moses ask God to do? I can't deal with these people anymore. These two million people yelling and screaming at me. I can't deal with it, God. Just kill me now. Moses said it out of his very mouth. Now, if you had 200 million or two, two million Israelites dealing in the wilderness with you, you'd, you'd probably have some problems too. Moses had had it, and he asked God to take his life. Okay, think about Elijah. Think about Elijah. Remember Mount Carmel? The prophets of Baal? This huge showdown where God rained down fire and, and then Elijah went and killed all the prophets. It's like the greatest display of God's power. And then all of a sudden, King Ahab goes and tells his wicked wife, Jezebel, hey, this is what, this is what um, Elijah did. And then Jezebel says, I'm coming after him. And what does Elijah do? He runs and he hides and he's scared. And he goes and he hides out in the wilderness and he's all alone in 1 Kings 19.4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah said it. God, I want to die. She's breathing down my neck. And this was after the greatest high he could ever have spiritually. I mean, think about it. He just had the greatest spiritual experience of his life and now he's hiding out and he says, God, just kill me. Just take me out. Take me out of the world. Moses said it. Elijah said it. Okay, I want you to think about Jonah. Remember Jonah? Jonah ran away from God. Jonah got swallowed by a big fish. Jonah got vomited up on dry land. Jonah went into Nineveh and said, turn or burn. And what happened to the people? They turned and didn't burn. God relented. And Jonah got mad at God. He went over and had a pity party. He said, God, I'm so mad at you because you, you saved the Ninevites, these pagans. God, I'm so mad at you for your grace. I want you to kill me. Now, that's amazing. Jonah 4, 2 through 3. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is it not this what I said when I was with you in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Now he suffered from racism and from a lack of of compassion for God-saving sinners. Three men. I am so sick and tired of this life. God, get me out of here. I want to die. I'm frustrated. I'm stressed. I'm discouraged. I can't handle it anymore. You may, you've probably been there before. So you're in good company. Moses wanted to be taken out. Elijah wanted to be taken out. Jonah wanted to be taken out. But let me ask you a question. Did God take him out? Not at that time. God said to Moses, you're not getting taken out. You still got to lead my people. 
Elijah, you're not going to get taken out now. You've still got to do some things, then I'll take you up in the whirlwind. Jonah, you're not going to be taken out right now. God did not answer their prayer at that moment. God said, you're staying in the world because I have a plan for you. I have a mission for you. And that's the same thing with you. God does not honor your request to be taken out of the world because he's got a plan for you right now for you to accomplish. God's got a mission for you right now. He's got plans. He's got purposes. He's got a destiny for you to fulfill right now. And he's not done with you. When God's done with you, he will take you in his time. But the encouragement we have is that Jesus doesn't promise to take us out of the world but to sovereignly protect us and sustain us in the world. 1 Corinthians 1, 7-9. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who will what? Sustain you to win. He will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ. God is faithful to sustain you to the end. He will do it. He will sustain you. His grace will sustain you to the end. He'll keep you to the end. He'll guide you to the end. He'll guard you to the end. You will be protected to the end in the sovereign grip of Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24 Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. God will do it. And this should give you great encouragement, great comfort to know that no matter what you face in this world, whatever discouragements, whatever disunity, whatever the devil brings out of you, whatever hatred or persecution from the world, all these things that come to you, God will keep you to the end. He will protect you. He won't take you out of it, but he will take you through it. And he will be with you there every step of the way because Jesus is your good shepherd. And the shepherd takes care of the sheep. 1 Peter 2, 25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Think about that. Jesus is the shepherd of your soul. He's the overseer of your soul, which means that you're always going to be protected by Jesus. He's going to keep you in the name of the Father. He's going to guard you to the end. He's going to protect you. I don't know about you, but this gives me great confidence, great encouragement, great comfort to know that no matter what I face in this world, Christ as your shepherd will guard you and keep you in the name of the Father to the end by his grace alone. And you can rest in that, and it brings you great joy as opposed to discouragement. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And I want you to praise Jesus for being the great shepherd of your soul that keeps you to the end, that guards you in his name, that preserves you to the end, that protects you, that walks with you, that shelters you. Not takes you out of the world, takes you through it, by His grace alone. Would you give Him praise and thanks this morning for that? We thank You for Your sustaining grace in our lives. That we are not called to flounder and fail on our own or to do things in our own power, but we are able to persevere to the end because of Your sustaining grace in our lives. You protect us, You keep us. Lord, if there's anybody discouraged this morning, Would you give them the fullness of your joy? Lord, if there's anybody that's dealing with just onslaughts and derision from the world, 
Would you give them strength? Lord, if the devil's attacking some this morning, would you give them strength? Lord, if there's some disunity in somebody's life this morning, in their family or maybe in their relationships, would you protect them from that? And Lord, if there's others that are maybe drifting this morning, would you bring them back? Would, you renew a, would they renew a commitment to you this morning? Lord, help us to, to stay focused on the fact that you keep us, you guard us as our good shepherd. May we find great comfort and security and hope in that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.